All right, so many of us are, or you know somebody who is a planner, right? Do you? Okay, good. My wife is a planner, big-time planner. One of the many ways that God has used our marriage covenant to grow me just as a man and as a human being is that I have become more of a planner. Vernon likes to joke around with us that we have every single day of every single week planned for the next few years. That's a little bit of hyperbole, but he senses that. What's your current plan for today? I'm glad that whatever your plan is for today, that celebrating the Lord's Day among the Lord's people is a part of your plan. No matter your heart's motive, whether you were dragged here, whether you feel cold for Jesus right now, cold for his word, you are here. And that is a good thing. And I pray that maybe today that the Holy Spirit would change your heart to see that um, there's more beauty here in the scriptures with this people than whatever else you can do in this time. That's my prayer for you. Today, I plan to wake up at 6.30 a.m. That is my norm for Sunday mornings. While you're still sleeping and dreading coming to church or putting your clothes on or whatever, I got to drive this, got to do that, your pastor is already up praying for you, finishing the final moments of this moment, of this gathering for you. And even better, we know from Psalm 121 that God never tires, he never sleeps, he never slumbers, which means though you may rest to recover to get to this day, our God is still working and toiling for his glory and for your ultimate good. So I wake up and I have my time of prayer, my time of devotion. Here's the sneaky and destructive thing about being a pastor. It is very sneaky and very easy to use sermon preparation as a substitute for personal devotion because pastors have to be in the word all the time. And it's very easy for a pastor, for which you should continue to pray for me, that there's no such thing as substituting private personal devotion for sermon preparation. That is sneakily destructive for a pastor, his family, and for his church. So pray for me. After that, I have a cup of tea with tea. So you know my wife loves a cup of tea. So we have tea. We kind of get our heads together for the day. And then I get ready. And then I'm here. After our gathering today, I plan to spend time with the men of heritage. I love to spend time with the men of heritage. You would think after being up since 6.30 that I want to go home and go to sleep. I could very well do that. And sleep is a good thing. But there's many theologians who say the enemy of the best is not things that are not good, but the good that is not good enough. Anything that I could do, of everything I could do on a Sunday afternoon, there's no greater privilege and no greater honor than to spend time with the men that I've spent time with for years, investing God's word into them. That's my plan for after church today. Many men may view times in the Bible as a waste of time, or as just a routine you have to hurry up and get through to get to the important things of the day. Instead of realizing that time together as men, time in the scriptures as men, man, we are stewarding each other. We are stewarding each other as adopted brothers in Christ. We are stewarding these great scriptures that were entrusted to us so we can rightly understand them and rightly apply them to life. All right, so what about you? We all have a story of a time when we planned something, intended something to take place, 
but it didn't work out the way that we intended, right? Mm -hmm. It didn't work out, but right now, where you are today, July 9, 2023, you can look back and you can see what we just sung about, the sovereign hand of God working all things for good, right? In that moment, you could not. That's called wisdom. Here's the thing. God is an infinitely better planner than you are. Some of you are not convinced of this. Some of you think that you have better plans and how to spend your time and what to do right now. You have better desires. You have better dreams. You have better hopes than God. But I pray that the Holy Spirit convicts you through the preaching of the word today that there is no better planner than God. That in essence, you are a planner. You have hopes and dreams because God has a heart. And God has a dream, a purpose by which he is working, even still today. Today we're going to see Solomon make some sense out of God's complete sovereignty over all things. We're going to see that God is sovereign, even over evil, through the example of Joseph, the son of Israel, and Jesus, the son of another Joseph and Mary. We're going to see that God is sovereign, Therefore, there is no such thing as what the pagans call chance or luck. And then we're going to be left to consider that, you know what, there may be people who consider church to be important, who consider church family to be important, but your heart is not in step with God. You think you're religious, you think your ways are clean and good, but God weighs the motive. And he will find that your motives today may be found wanting. And what do we do with that when it happens? Now, to do this, we need to address the idea that naturally, myself included, naturally, without the intervention of God, the mercy of God in our lives, you and I don't want a God. You and I do not want a king. You and I do not want a guide because you and I, we want to be in charge. And we will buck against any king, any boss, any parent, any spouse, any friend who wants to show otherwise. Let's get started with our proposition today. So our proposition is the truth. I try, God willing, these are like my Mondays and Tuesdays every week, to get this statement as simple and as clearly communicated as possible, which we pray that you would see is the main idea by which Solomon is driving at. Today it's this, that God accomplishes his redemptive purpose through the plans and the intentions of humanity. No matter how evil, no matter how heinous, no matter the abuse that you and I as Christians may experience. We'll get there today. Many people, even churchgoers, I would even say actually especially American churchgoers, have an unbiblical view of events that take place in their lives. They're entirely too dualistic than what the Bible says about a worldview. By and large, people attribute the good things that happen in life to God, and then all the bad things that happen to them to who? To Satan, right? If I had a dollar for every time I've heard this since I was 15 years old serving a church, man, Christianity is not dualistic, that there are these two equally powerful beings that are fighting over you. That's not what the Bible says. That's not, it's cosmology. It's worldview. 
And that's not Solomon's view either. And at the end of the day, it shouldn't be your view as well. As a Christian who says that they love to read and consider what the Bible says as their ultimate and final authority, which is our number one affirmation of what it means to be a church member here at Heritage, that we will strive through. We're not perfect to have the Lord Jesus and his word as our final and ultimate authority. See that? So today we're going to seek to answer two fundamental questions. First, okay, how do you reconcile that God is good, that he is sovereign, not just over the joys, but over the hurts, over the sorrows, over the abuse, over the scandals? And then second, how do you reconcile the view that, okay, so God's in the good, Satan's in the bad. So those who do good to me, those are people from God. And then those who hurt me, those are agents of Satan, and i got to ostracize them, marginalize them, and abuse them back. How do we escape that as people? You see, this view is destructive. And Christians must ask God, change my mind on this. Change my heart on this. In fact, that should be your prayer every single time that you're arriving on this campus. God, there is something today that you need to change my mind on, that you have to change my heart on. There, it's not just behavior modification. That's not what Christianity is. Just clean up the outside of the cup. Just wash down the outside of the tomb. It's regeneration, death coming to life, right? Only God's word and spirit can do this. The book of Proverbs acknowledges that life, humanity, events, relationships are so much more complex than people who are good who do good to us and then people are bad because they do bad to us. Solomon's answer is that God accomplishes his purpose over and above all the plans and all the intentions of humanity. It's not just God working in the good and the people who do good in our lives. It's also equally powerfully true that it's God working in those who hurt us as well. He's sovereign over both. The Bible's wisdom is that it, only, it isn't only the aggressor who has fallen and broken and evil, right? The Bible's wisdom is that you too, myself included, we are fallen, we are broken, we are evil, meaning, evil meaning this, that you and I are naturally inclined to put my house, my kingdom, my people over God. That's what evil is. In essence, the wisdom of the Bible is this. Your heart cannot be trusted above all as the final authority of your life. The heart is created by God and for God and can be used by God. But it's not absolute. It's not final. It's not total over your life. It is fickle at best. But here's the thing. This runs against everything that is in you as a human being, and it runs everything against you that's coming at you from Western American culture since the Great Awakening in the 18th century in this country. We become far more individualistic, putting our hearts, our desires, our dreams above everything. Individual versus community since the Great Awakening here in America. 200 plus years. And you are byproducts of it. I am a byproduct of it. I naturally put me before we, 
My home before your home. My home before God's home. My heart before your heart. What I want to do in this moment above what you want to do in this moment. That's what it means to be Americans, right? Okay. This clashes with the gospel, with the authority of God on this topic. And I pray you have a collision course with God's authority today so you can walk out of this place and decide who is actually in charge, you or the God who created all things to be. And I pray that God will give you his grace to know that you are not the boss of all of this, that God is, and that's a good thing. And you can trust in your, above your heart, you can trust in his heart, demonstrated best through Jesus. Amen? Amen. Here's a scripture to it. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 through 10. God says this through Jeremiah, that the heart is more deceitful than all else. It's pretty clear, right? It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The answer comes, I the Lord. That's who. I search the heart. I test the mind. And even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Isn't this clear? Who can understand your heart? Not you. Why should you trust in it? Why should you believe American cultural mantra? Go with the gut. Go with the heart. Trust your heart. And the Bible says the heart is more deceitful than all else. It's tricksy. There are people in this room, I have to assume, but I do know as well, who maintain views about life that clash with the Bible. You believe that you're a Christian, you say you love Jesus, you say you love this church, but God is actually not your authority in life. You are. And you demonstrate it all the time by your words and actions over time. God says, your heart is more deceitful than anything else on this planet. Do you remember what Satan's nickname is? It's also, well, I won't go there. She looked at me. What's his nickname? The deceiver. The heart is more deceitful than all else. God says that your heart is desperately sick, yet you believe and maintain that your heart is true, and it must be trusted above all things, above all voices. So who is right today, you who believe this? Are you right? Your heart can be trusted above God's heart. Your authority can be trusted above God's authority. Or is God right? And you can trust his heart above all things. And the wisest life on this planet is best spent in the disposition that trusts his heart above your own when it clashes. Today is about how does the wisdom of the Bible align your heart with God's heart? The answer to this question, those who gather here today, it determines actually whether you're a Christian or not. Not coming down here when you're 15 years old and saying, I believe in Jesus. Not signing an affirmation to become a church member that you believe Jesus, you believe his word. Answers to these types of questions determines whether you are a Christian or not. God says you cannot trust your heart above all. You cannot go with your guts above all. Life is far too complex for this simplistic mantra to be true. You need God as king, as redeemer, and as guide. 
You need to go with your God, not with your gut. You need to go with your helper and not with your heart. You need to trust God, who has demonstrated time and time again, whether it's parting the Red Sea or the crucifixion of his son, that he's got this. Nature, human plans, the affairs of the heart, whatever you are experiencing, death, crucifixion, resurrection, eternity, God has got this. As we sing, from beginning to the end, I can trust you, not the heart, you. Not me, you. That was Harry Potter, by the way. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Am I nailing the impersonation over time? Ryan said, nope. That's like Forrest Gump. Well, maybe I'll, I'll watch Forrest Gump again and throw some of that in there. Let's get started, church. Point one. God fulfills his purpose using all, all human plans and human motives. Solomon begins to help us make sense of the relationship between God's goodness and God's sovereignty and human planning, whether good plans or evil plans. I want you to think about Solomon's life. This is why it's so important to read your Bible. There's no biblical command that says, thou shalt read Genesis through Revelation in 365 days a year. The Hebrew calendar wasn't even 365 days a year. All right? There's no biblical command, but it's good. It's a good practice because then you get to read about Solomon. And you get to read what was going on in his family. You get to read about his joys and his weaknesses, his strengths and his foibles, right? I want you to think about Solomon's life, if you know anything about him. His father was King David, the man after God's own heart. David was God's chosen king. But he wasn't the first of his family, nor is he the best. He was the last of his family, the youngest of his family. And David was hated and hunted by the king of the time, King Saul. David hid in caves for years as his king, whom he was a guitar player basically for, and his armor bearer, the one, he was his captain who would go out and lead Israel for him. This man hunted him. He was son-in-law, and he was hunted and hated by his own father-in-law. I'm so thankful my father-in-law doesn't treat me that way. <laughs> Though sometimes they threaten that if I do anything to their daughter that they can put me back in the swamp where no one would ever be able to find me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it is true. It is true. I, I have a healthy fear. All right. Yes. It, it leads to wisdom. It really does. It really does. You know Solomon's mother was Bathsheba, right? Bathsheba had to have told her son at some point how mom and dad came together, right? Every child learns their parents' romance. And he would soon discover that his parents' romance really was not romantic. David abused his kingly authority to take another woman into his bedroom as if he didn't have enough. So much to learn in that, but it's not the goal of today's sermon. That sex can never be enough, but another time, another place. Solomon had to know that his mom was married before she was married to David. That she was married to a mighty man, one of David's mighty men named Uriah the Hittite. 
And David had him killed to cover up the fact that he impregnated another man's wife. Someone had to know the horrors, the tragedies, the sorrows, the embarrassment of his family, right? Mama had to have told him, or so we infer. Remember, Proverbs acknowledges both the beauty and the brokenness of humanity, and Solomon knows this well. Keep that in mind as you read the very first verse of his wisdom today. Verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man. Think of all the things in Solomon's life. (laughs) The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Solomon acknowledges two equally and timeless truths that he contrasts throughout the rest of Proverbs 16. The human heart dreams, desires, plans, right? Why do you have plans and dreams and desires today? Things that you intend and purpose to do today. It is because you are handcrafted in the image of God. Because God dreams, God plans, God is working towards a perceived end of all things. That's why you do the same thing. It is my plan to spend time with our men in God's word after church. I love it. I'm not compelled to do it. I'm not forced by anyone to spend time with our men. I want to do it. That is true, that is timeless, that is eternal. Yet, in addition to this, it is also equally timeless and eternally true that in concert with that, that God is planning and intending to use the same intentions of my heart. Both of those things are true. And God's spirit has to convince you of this today. And I pray he does that by realizing he's authoritative and you're not. You and I are not accidental, evolutionary byproducts of just billions of years of things, of something coming from nothing. That zero plus zero equals one. They really are your dreams, your plans, your purposes. After our time tonight, I get to spend time with Tisa and Aubrey. It's movie night. No one is compelling me to do this. I want to do this. It's my desire to do this. But over and above it, equally and validly true, is that God is working in all the plans and the intentions of my heart. All resolutions from all plans are from God. It's not that, okay... God is totally unaware of what you want to do, what you plan to do, until you do it. Then he has to hurry up a Hail Mary at the last second, just try to work it out for good. That's not God. God moves in our willing and our doing. Many people meant and planned harm and evil against Solomon's father. David also meant and intended hurt against many people in his life, Bathsheba included. God knows this. He's not caught by surprise. And he uses this for his glory and for our ultimate good. Only God is powerful enough to do this, to take the deepest evils, to take the the lowest of our sufferings, and to work it out for good. 
That's my God. That's my authority. The question you have to answer today, is that your God? And is that your authority? Let's get the first nine. Solomon says, the mind of man plans his way, but it's the Lord that directs his steps. Clear? Solomon's making it clear. Man plans. It's your plan. It's your steps. That's true. The shirt that I put on, I wanted to put it on. I wanted to look green today. Right? But equally powerfully true in the ultimate sense, the final sense, it's also God working these things. This means that there is ultimate purpose behind what happens in this life, in your narrative and my narrative. So we have to ask, okay, how far does this sovereignty reach? And that's where we go to more verses that Solomon mentions here. I want you to jump down to verse 33 now. How far does God's sovereignty reach? Even to things that you and I would call incidental. Verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. Now the Romans had this goddess called Fortuna. It's where we get our English word fortune. It's basically what we would call luck or chance. Anything that can't be attributed to Jupiter or the other major gods, there was a god for that, Fortuna. If we can't explain, okay, then it's, it's, it's Fortune who did this. The ancients in Solomon's day cast lots. They casted lots because lots could not be controlled or manipulated by another human being. The idea was that it cannot be influenced by another person, so it's a good objective indicator. Solomon's point is that even the casting of lots is determined by the decision-making of God. Which is why, moments before, the Lord Jesus gave up the ghost. What happened? He yielded his spirit. That's the old word for ghost. There were Roman soldiers who cast lots for his clothing. Remember that? Even at the cross, the Lord Jesus is trying to tell you, there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. Everything that happens, even the cross that I'm bearing, is by the ultimate decision of God. Not fortune, not fortuna, but Yeshua and Yahweh. That is how far God's sovereignty reaches. It reaches down even to something that you would think is incidental. And that should begin to free you. Because it's not just the people who do good things to you that are good people. And it's not just the people who do bad things to you are bad people. They should be vilified, and karma needs to come and get them. That's how we talk as Americans for some reason, which really isn't American. It's Eastern to talk that way. Every decision, even down to the casting of lots, comes down to the decision of God, even the hurts that I experience. So we have to ask, how can God be good? How can God be sovereign? If verse 33 is true, how can he be good and sovereign in tragedy and suffering and evil? Look at verse 4. Psalm is about to strengthen his case. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose. Even the wicked. Even those who hurt you. Even those who hurt his son. Even the wicked for the day of evil. It's a huge verse. Solomon is once again clear, don't you think? God uses all things, 
He even uses evil for good purposes. God is so sovereign that the evilest intentions are made impotent by the cross. That's why Paul glories in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? That the cross took the stinger out of Satan. The cross took the stinger out of evil. Yeah, we get hurt today, but that final hurt is gone. So how do we reconcile these two truths? That my plans, my motives are mine, yet equally true that God is good. God is sovereign in and through them. We're going to look very quickly at two old, well, one old and one New Testament example. This is why we love, here at Heritage, going through the Bible. Not just topical sermons. We go through the Bible. We make the focus Bible verses. Because a couple years ago, we went through the life of Joseph, the son of Israel, right, from start to finish. I just want to paraphrase for a moment. Just narrate his story for you, just to get it back into your head. His father was named Jacob. His name was changed to Israel. Jacob was a polygamist. It's very natural for human beings to mess up and have weird thoughts about sexuality. And don't think that's because they're Old Testament saints that they had things right and that they were heterosexual, that they had things right. Four wives, 12 sons, many other daughters. And he was fallen and broken. Out of these four women, Jacob loved Rachel most of all. Neglected three for the one. Broken man, fallen man. The ten sons knew this. You see, these three women gave Jacob ten sons. But because he loved Rachel most, Rachel had two sons and then she died. She had Joseph and she had Benjamin. And Jacob loved Joseph most of all. These boys knew it. And their dad's fallenness and brokenness messed them up. But there's redemption at the end, as there always is. Our parents mess us up, but our Abba, he comes in and fixes things, right? It led these ten brothers to hatred in their hearts, which gave birth to evil plans and purposes for their brother Joseph. They hurt Joseph. They threw him in a pit, just left him there. Tears, agony, blood. And then they sell him into slavery. In slavery, Joseph flourished until he was accused of rape by his master's wife. He gets thrown into jail for those accusations, because he's a minority, and the majority never believes a minority, right? In prison, Joseph flourished again until he was forgotten by those that he helped while he was in prison. Joseph experienced deeper hurt and deeper sorrow than most of us do. I can't imagine for a brother to beat me and to sell me. I can't imagine that. But Joseph didn't give up, and we ask why. Because like Solomon, Joseph knew, and he loved the presence of God. It wasn't an obstruction. It was his comfort, whether it's prison or the comfort of his father's love, that God was present. This is something that you and I need to grow into. So one day, the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, needed help. And at this moment, God worked in his providence so Pharaoh's cupbearer would remember Joseph. Forgotten all this time until this moment. Such a time as this, as Esther would say. Joseph helped this cupbearer in the same way that Pharaoh then needed help. So the cupbearer speaks up, which you do not do in the presence of an ancient king. 
we're much more audacious and have a lack of respect for people in authority today as was done back then. Joseph helped Pharaoh, and he gave God all the credit for it. Pharaoh made Joseph a prince, prime minister of Egypt. And at this time, there was going to be seven years of abundance and then seven years of famine. And God was equally present in the seven years of abundance and in the seven years of famine. God gave Joseph a wise and discerning heart, which I think is a good principle for you and I. In times when you have abundance, you don't spend more, you save more. And then, which is weird, when you feel like you don't have much, you give more. That should change our summertime giving here at Heritage. It should, because giving has done this, because you think you have less. But Joseph, seven years of abundance, he saves. Seven years of famine, he gives. That's the pattern of Christian giving. See, God is present in both the abundant years and the lean years. Now, eventually, that included these ten brothers having to come to Egypt and beg for help. Joseph and his brothers are reunited. They live east of Egypt in Goshen. And eventually, dad dies. And these ten brothers are afraid. Now that dad's dead, is the brother that we abused going to take his vengeance finally? And they're shaking in their boots. Well, probably sandals. Joseph eventually speaks to them. And I want you to see his perspective on all the evil that these ten brothers did to him. Genesis 50-20. Joseph says, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me. But look at the contrast. But God meant it for good. To bring about this present result. To preserve many people alive. Look at Joseph's wisdom here and how it perfectly aligns with Proverbs 16. Joseph's ten brothers planned, purposed, meant evil against him. No one forced Reuben and Judah and Levi and Simeon, the rest of the brothers, to hate Joseph. No one forced them to abuse Joseph. They wanted to do it. But equally as true, God meant that same hurt. God meant that same abuse, the same hate, the same rejection for Joseph's ultimate good, which is preservation, redemption, the salvation of people in times of famine. God worked all of Joseph's experiences together for the redemption of his people because Joseph wasn't a man who said, when things go hard, oh, those money pockets, they go away. And they only come out when there's abundance. He was the opposite man, which I pray you will be the opposite man as well. That you're a giver when it hurts and a saver when it's good. Because that's what Joseph was. Think about our Lord now. Jesus experienced sorrows and hurts and tragedies that would make Joseph's life look like a day at an amusement park. Right? Jesus wasn't just rejected by ten brothers. He was rejected by and large by the 12 tribes of Israel, a whole nation of ethnically brothers and sisters. Jesus was rejected by the majority of people then and now who was coming to contact with his name. 
Sometimes they may appear to be interested in him for a day, a week, a month, a year, a season of life. And then, boom, they're gone because it was for selfish purposes. Think of the rich young ruler, right? He walks away because he's rich. Eventually, the teaching of Jesus drew all of this out in people. And this led for the governing religious authorities of his day to also develop a plan in their hearts, not just to sell the son into slavery, the brother into slavery, but to crucify him. They planned, they intended, they worked towards the murder of Jesus, son of Joseph and Mary, son of David the king. And Jesus died on a cross, the most humiliating in public and horrific death that a person could experience in first century Roman history. Now for a moment, I want you to take a look at how Peter processed all of this and how he spoke in the very first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost. I want you to take a look at this. Look at Peter's perspective. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. He says, Men of Israel... Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again. You meant evil, God meant it for good. What good? putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Wow. Make no mistake, Heritage. It was humanity's heart, humanity's plan to crucify Jesus. No one forced Judas to betray him. No one forced a Roman soldier to drive nails through him. No one forced the high priest to be outraged and move towards his murder. They weren't forced to do it. It was their desire. But equally true, God predetermined the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of his son. It was always God's plan since before Genesis 1 to put his son to death, to give life to adopted sons and daughters. That was always his plan. And now, Romans 8, 28. And you know why I'm smiling we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Can you see? I heard Diane say it, and that makes a pastor's heart so happy when you know what your pastor's favorite verse is. But you can see why this is my favorite verse. God causes all things, even the hurts that Joseph experienced, even the hurts that King David experienced, even the hurts that King David caused, even the tragedies and the sorrows and the cross of our Lord for his glory and for yours and mine, for our ultimate good, our highest good. So here's the wisdom. Both of these things are true. Theologically, we call it an antinomy. You don't need to know that. Two truths that may seem the contrast, but actually they're peanut butter jelly time. Now we're going to turn to application where we have to address our hearts and the plans and the purposes that you and I concoct and where it fits in with all of this. So let's move to application. The, the push, the drive for us today. So you and I need to align our desires, your desires, with God's designs. 
That's what we need. God's ultimate design, in the case of Joseph, in the case of Jesus, in the case of every heritage Christian here today, God's ultimate design is the redemption of his people. That his son Jesus would restore all that Adam and Eve broke. God is after the redemption of his church and the redemption of creation. God will use all things, even suffering, even death, even abuse, to accomplish this. But it takes our hearts a long time to catch up to this truth, right? It takes a lot of hurting and a lot of time and time and time again in the scriptures. It takes our hearts a long time to catch up to this truth. Because at the end of the day, your heart and my heart naturally, independently of God's work, is broken. You believe and you act in the mantra, trust your heart, go with your gut. All right, I got to geek out on you for a moment. I'm sorry, but we spent a couple weeks in the cabin and we watched all six Hobbits and Lord of the Rings. I'm sorry to you. I'm thankful for myself. Sorry, not sorry. In the Lord of the Rings, the main character, Frodo, is a hobbit. He is half the size of a man, and he is called to do something that no man triple the stature has ever been able to do. How can he do it? He's so small. How can he do this? The mightiest of kings can't do what he is called to do. He has to set out to a specific destination that's predetermined by another person. At this location, Frodo has to do the simplest, yet the hardest thing to do, to simply take a little token, a ring, and cast it into the lake of fire in this mountain. Seems easy, but it's so hard. This quest cannot end in whatever location Frodo chooses. In fact, a uh, dwarf comes up in the middle of the discussion, takes this axe, and tries to break it. He cannot do this quest in his way, his time, his location, his manner. The quest can only end in one way, one predetermined way and location. And Frodo acknowledges very simply, humbly, innocently, that he doesn't know the way, that he will go, but he doesn't know the way. Frodo isn't given a map. He's given a guide. In fact, he is given two guides. And these guides, they are good. They are good men. They are kingly. They are trustworthy. But on this journey, Frodo believes that one of his guides are dead. That he cannot trust his other companions in this fellowship. And providence, it seems, gives him another guide. But this guide is not good. This guide is not kingly. He skulks around in darkness. He has one intention. And ironically, providentially, the one thing that this being wants is the one thing that Frodo has and the one thing he has to destroy. And providence does this. Despite this, providence works, even through evil guidance, to get Frodo to Mount Doom. Now, one truth I want to pull out from this is that like Frodo, you need a guide to get to the end that God has given to you. But the human heart is deceiving. And as his other guy would say, it's tricksy. That's Gollum. That was intended to be humor. It wasn't humorous. Continuing on. 
But deep down, you don't want a guide. You don't. You would rather, some would rather a map, and then to figure it out themselves. But I've thought about it through building, or actually watching my father-in-law and Vernon build a bunch of furniture for us the past couple weeks, that we actually don't want a map at all. We just want to do it ourselves, right? Because they don't look at directions. Why are we like this? Because we have an authority problem. We don't want a guide. Some of us will be content with a map, and we get to figure it out ourselves. Or we can just determine where we, we want to take our axe and slay the, slay the ring. We want to pick the location of where to take the ring. Or better yet, let's just go back to the comforts of my hobbit hole. The reality is, I pray that you have the courage to acknowledge that you are out of sync with God. You have a heart that was created by God, and your heart is actually out of sync for why it was created. So the final question that you and I need wisdom on is this. Okay, since my heart is deceitful, since it is tricksy, how can a person's heart be aligned with God? What hope is there? First is, you have the parakletos, the comforter, the helper, whom we call the Holy Spirit. All of it hinges on the work and the joy of the Holy Spirit. Not to give you these great gifts, but simply to bring your heart into the heart of Jesus. That's his joy. He works in you to confess that naturally, on your own, independently of any aid of God, you don't want God as king. You don't want God as guide. You don't even want his map. You want to build it yourself. Until your life is about to break, and then you turn to God for a little bit, and things get better, because nothing lasts forever. Everything has to revert back to the means. Ask any mathematician. Everything reverts back to a means. And then when things revert back to the means, you give up on God. At the end of the day, we need the courage by his spirit to acknowledge that you want to be in control, which is not Christianity. A couple more verses to go through. Verse 2, Solomon says, All the ways of man, of course they're clean. Of course they're clean in his own sight, right? But the Lord weighs the motives. Solomon gives such excellent wisdom here. You are always going to think that your plans, your ideas, your feelings are right and clean and true. It's human. You are the last person to find out that your ways aren't clean, that your motives aren't good. Solomon says, all the ways a man are clean in his own sight. What hope is there? That's why we have the Holy Spirit of Jesus. That's why we have the body of Jesus, which is the church, which many of you push back against. When someone in the church presses you, you push back. And that's why you have the very breath of Jesus, which is his word. Three things to safeguard you from the reality of life, that you're always going to think that you're right. You're always going to get your ways are clean. Right? For those of you who have been married, had a good marriage for a while, we've been reminded not all of our ways are clean. Right? Right? Okay. You may think that your plans and motives are good and right, but Solomon says it is God alone that can weigh the motives. So with this, a mental image has to be evoked of scales. You've got to think about those scales. What Solomon is trying to tell you 
It's that your personal scales to judge and to weigh your motives, they're not right. You can't trust them ultimately. It may get close that whatever you put on it, it weighs 1.4 pounds, but the reality is it weighs 1.5. And it's still wrong. Even if you're this far off, it's still wrong. You cannot weigh and judge rightly for yourself. Your scales are broken. That's where Christianity begins. That's where wisdom begins. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it begins by saying, my scales are wrong and yours are right. So help me, I pray. You need someone outside of you to do this. And once again, this strikes accord against every Americana ideal in you. We're not taught that we're wrong, that we're right. Only God is good. Only God is right. Only God is clean enough to weigh our hearts and our motives. So we must trust God, therefore. On whatever God says about blank subject that you're bucking against him on, you must trust God on that topic over and above what you think when it clashes. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow me. That's what it means to hate your father and mother, yea, even your own life. That's what Jesus means by this. When what you want and what God clearly says clashes, Christianity is proven when you go with God. Anything else means you may be religious and do religious things, but you are your own God at the end of the day. And that's very American of us, for you to be your own God. Let's take a look at verse 3. This is about committing and knowing God's word and applying what it says to your heart and our plan. Solomon says, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Now, by commit, Solomon literally means like, if you could read Hebrew, what he means is like, you take this like log and you're just like rolling it. That's what this word commit means in English. You think commitment in America, but this is like, it should be, you're rolling a log onto the Lord. That's what Solomon means here. Solomon's wisdom is to see your works and your ways like a log. And this log has to be rolled onto someone more powerful than you. And that is the Lord, right? Commit your works, roll those works, roll those ways to the Lord. And guess what? Jesus took that wooden log and he put it on his shoulders and he walked from Jerusalem to outside the city where another log would intersect with it. And he took your works and he took your ways and he bore them. Commit, cast, roll your plans, your labors, your dreams, your desires to God. He'll bear it and he'll establish it for his glory and for your ultimate good. And God begins to do this first by changing your heart. And that has to begin, Heritage, by acknowledging, I've been doing this church thing for a while, but God's still not in charge of my life. I'm in charge of my life. I do what I want to do when I want to do it. It's my time. It's my money. It's my service. No, it's not. You're showing you're your own God. And maybe Jesus, that genie in the bottle, baby, got to rub it the right way. 
as you cast your cares and drive your dreams and push your plans to God, Jesus takes them. He puts them on his shoulders. He bears them. He dies for them. And his spirit changes your heart. The heart is reordered. Your desires are reordered. You're no longer your final authority. You have a desire somewhere in there for God to be ultimate final authority. Not perfect. Still in flesh, but the desire is there. Your affections are aligned with his as you continually fix your eyes and your heart on him. So you have to be careful about what you put your eyes on because your heart follows. Psalm 37, 4. Solomon's dad writes this and prays this, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. That's the wisdom of David. Something happens to the deceitful heart when you delight in God. Your desires begin to change. When I was 15 and I first became a Christian, I desired things that I no longer desired in my 20s. When I was in my 20s, there were things I desired that I no longer desired in my 30s. Now that I'm in my 40s, I find my desires changing again. And the things I desired in my 30s are no longer what I desire. Accidental? No. The sovereign hand of God. It's a process. That's 25 plus years over across three decades of God working. And it's the same for you. And it's still the same for me. Would you pray for me about, please, please do. Your desires begin to change. Your desires begin to align with his desires. Because your heart slowly, and sometimes we think that the speed is like just a little bit, but it's still slowly growing into his heart. So commit your works to the Lord and you will be established. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You will continue to plan your ways and experience things. And you'll experience God's good desires over and above your plans. And this will happen in every mountaintop and every valley. And every joy and every sorrow. And every person has affection for you. And in every person that abuses you. God is fully sovereign. Even over all our plans and intentions. So where does this leave us today? I think that some of you too need to give up the ghost. Think you do. You need to acknowledge and feel the conviction your life is not in alignment with God. You think your ways are clean, but it's not. It's not. And if those who are closest to you felt comfortable enough to tell you, you would hear a chorus of warnings to come back. Insofar as God's interests align with your interests and your plan and God's plans align with your plans, you're good with God and you're good with his people. But as soon as he asks for too much, as soon as he asks for a little bit more of your time, a little bit more of your talents, and a little bit more of your treasures, he pushes back. As soon as God's interest challenges your interests, as soon as God's kingdom challenges your kingdom, you push back. So I think that some of you need to feel the truth and the conviction that though you say that you are a Christian, at the end of the day, God isn't the final and ultimate authority of your life. You are. 
And that's not Christianity, that's just religion. And America's filled with it. And to be honest, we don't want our church to be filled with that, right? Of just religion. Right? Are we still in alignment on that? Okay, okay. I was scared for a moment, Heritage. And I think that some of you need to experience a conviction that you don't want God as guide. You don't even want his map. You want to choose your own destination. Once again, that's not Christianity. That is setting up yourself as your own God. But I pray that like Moses and Aaron and the Israelites, that God will melt down all the things that you have formed into your own God. That's what I pray for you right now. Because this way ends in ruin. The wise and the fool, right? And the fool's end is ruin. So here's the hope. God can use all things, even my foolish ways, even your foolish ways, David's foolish ways, Judas's foolish ways, Peter's foolish ways, and accomplish his ultimate glory and our highest good in them.